0: I was uh, trying to think up what would be a good series to preach through during December and um, kind of a theme came to mind. Wanted to do a little bit of a break from Matthew during the Christmas weeks and I thought, what do we need to hear about most of all right now? And I think it's on the theme of hope. I wanna preach hope, hope at Christmas that I think is really right in time for what our hearts need to hear. Hope is something that, for the Christian, is much more than what anybody else has. People have what they call hope in the world, which is kind of a wishful thinking, a superficial idea of what might happen. People work pretty hard to kind of build up hope for something, hope that they'll have money in retirement, Hope that they'll have a long life of health by working out or eating right. Hope that things, bad things won't happen to them or to the ones that they love, right? But the hope that I'm talking about supersedes that. It goes far deeper. It goes to the very core of who God is. God is faithful to keep his promises. And the promises he makes to all Christians are the promises that we can hope in as a divine guarantee. It's the hope of eternal life. It's the hope of knowing Christ personally. It's the hope of heaven that's guaranteed for us no matter what happens. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. In this way, uh, the word hope, as the Bible defines it for the Christian, is something that is unshakable. It, it, can't, be un, it can't be broken. Hope is the Greek word elpis, which is enriched by grace. And hope, you could say, is a synonym for salvation. We think of 1 Corinthians 13, 13, where Paul gives the crescendo word on his love chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. He says, now faith, hope, and love abide. That means they remain, these three. But the greatest of these is love, the superlative Characteristic of the Christian life is to be loving or to have the love of Christ in your heart. But don't underestimate what it means that God gave you faith to see Christ and genuinely believe in Him as your Savior, as the person who loves you the most. But don't underestimate also the hope that you have that nothing can break up that relationship. The hope is solid and secure, it's based on God's perfect character. God cannot lie, cannot break his promise to you. The telltale heart condition that is transformed is one that has hope, where the Holy Spirit bears witness in your heart that you know Jesus is real, that he's guaranteed to love you. He's guaranteed that he saved you, guaranteed to keep you. Hope is higher than circumstances. It's higher than anything that you fear in life. Hope supersedes all of that, and it's all sort of focused on one thing, really one person. Hope is Christ. Hope is Jesus. To know Jesus is to have hope. To know that you are known by him is to have genuine hope, no matter what else is happening. Think of what Christ told Philip. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. To see Christ is to look into the eyes of hope. And I thought, you know, what I want to do is I want to share hope during the Christmas season. I think of all the Old Testament promises and prophecies of the coming Christ. And I want us to be able to look through the eyes of the ancient world of the Old Testament and with them envision ourselves Anticipating the birth of the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah. We as New Testament Christians look backwards, but I want us to go to the Old Testament and, and kind of be captivated by that anticipation again, because we know Jesus is coming again, and we know He's come into our hearts, and to resonate with all believers of all times with these promises are what connect us to hope. Alistair McGrath, a theologian from England, he said that a provocative statement that you got to take it the right way. He said, God is Christ-like. It's an interesting sort of idea that to know what God is like is to look into the very face of Jesus, who is fully God and took on full flesh, full humanity, the incarnate deity, that's what it means. The God-man showed us who God really is. The second member of the Trinity reveals God in Christ to us and this is hope. This is what we want everybody in the world to have is this hope, and this is what everybody in the world who doesn't have Christ is lacking. In fact, to be hopeless is to have a heart sickness. It's a heart-sickened condition. Proverbs 13:12, hope deferred or hope set aside makes the heart sick. People are sick. In their hearts, you could say they're sad in their hearts because they need Jesus. They don't yet know him. Conservative podcasters, not just the liberal ones, but the conservative ones, they'll diagnose what's wrong with the world and chat about it all the time. And I'll listen to some of it. It's interesting. Do the dishes and listen to it or whatever, drive around. But you hear people and they'll just pontificate about what's going wrong with our world. A failed economy, it's inflation thick a defenseless border system where people are crossing over and things are happening because of that. The threat of World War III is on the minds of a lot of people. If you support this nation too much, then that's upsetting this nation. If you're doing this, if you're saying that, it's making us more and more vulnerable as a country, perhaps poking the proverbial bear of the Middle Eastern countries or Russia in particular or China, depending on how we're falling out in our alliances can't trust the government locally, they they say. Can't trust medical care, can't trust the market. It's going up and down. What about this? What about the death culture idea? It's a liberal agenda that has been cast as a death culture. If you promote transgenderism, if you promote this andre- androgynous culture, this... ...taboo to talk about... Um, true classic biblically defined marriage between a man and a woman, true classic family building through that. I mean, that's all taboo and it's because people in their minds want this sort of death culture where you can't procreate. It's monochromatic. The only hope is to evolve, to become a different species or some other thing. That's all hopelessness and even conservative podcasters who don't buy into that If they don't have Christ, you'll find that where they end is in a rant, and they just rant and rant and boil in in anger because they're frustrated because they don't understand what's wrong really with the world, which is sin. We live in a sin-cursed world, and we need a Savior, and we need the one true Savior, which is Christ. Genesis 6, the pre-fall, pre-flood condition, rather, uh, was just multiplying sin upon sin upon sin, and ultimately God destroyed the world with water. And again, in Romans 1, that's echoed in the New Testament with a digressive culture that's flipping what would be so logical and sensical in terms of normal living. It's flipping it on its head in a digression and a sort of death spiral into sin. Well, where's the hope in all this culture? Where, where do we find it? Well, I was, by God's grace, given a a very good phone call um, this week. I was sort of pulling books off my shelf, thinking about the theme of hope, wondering where I could go, how I could build a little series through the next few weeks into Christmas and Christmas Eve, call us to hope, and I got a phone call from a college student who grew up in the church here, grew up at the school, Grace Christian, and is down at a Christian college. And he was still there. And he he left me a voicemail that said, I just, and I've never had a conversation, a long one with this guy before. And he just said, I want to tell you what the Lord's doing in my life. So can you give me a call back? Well, you're going to pick the phone up and call him right back, right? It's funny. I did this. That's old school for phones. (laughs) That. You know that. Anyway, so, or you just tell your phone, call this person. So I called him back, and for the next half hour, he began to explain to me how he w- had grown up in some bitterness. He had had some s- serious hurt and harm in his life um, from some circumstances and came here and, and struggled quite a bit and for a long time. And uh, that bubbled up um, to the point where he was kind of in despair, some anger, some bitterness, some hopelessness, and went away to Christian college. And as he was there, he found some freedoms to find ways to sort of escape and numb himself to the pain of anxiety. That's basically some and substance of what he was telling me. And um, he said, but last week, he was given an assignment where he had to give a speech that interlaced Scripture into what he was speaking about. And he said, as he did that, as he was speaking the Scripture was the first thing and the only thing that began to calm his anxieties down for the first time in his life. And he said, it's amazing. And he couldn't stop talking about how the Lord had worked in his heart and how the scripture is where he was going to for comfort and calm and peace in his own heart. And he said, he went up after the sermon, he had been attending this church the whole time he was there, went up and talked to a lady who was a counselor there. And he said, I can't do it anymore. And just letting go, letting go of self, letting go of his sin. And it was as if the burden, we were talking about this, like the Pilgrim's Progress, the burden was just rolling off his back. And everything was found to be peaceful in the cross. And he said, I want everybody to hear my story. And I don't care who knows and what people hear about. I just want to share the hope that I have because I didn't have hope and I want everybody else to have hope. He said, I want to come and be baptized. And so he's I'm going to come up here um, over Christmas break and be baptized. Hopefully you can hear his story from his voice about that. But I was pretty charged up after that to preach on hope. Hope. This is what we need. It's what we share. And I want us to look at it through the eyes of the Old Testament, anticipating the coming of Christ Christ prophecies from the Old Testament. Think of Psalm 2, 7. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Psalm 2, verses 11 and 12. Kiss the son lest he be angry. Proverbs 30, verse 4. Listen to this one. Who has ascended to heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? Surely you know. I like that one. Isaiah 7, 14, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, we read that earlier. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. Hosea 11, verse 1, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Micah 5, 1 to 5, verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. These are familiar verses. Some are most prophecies we hear through the voice of a prophet. We recognize Isaiah, Jeremiah, different ones, the minor prophets, and they speak of the one who is to come. Some prophecies, are the direct voice of the Father intimately speaking of the Son. Remember, God is Christ-like, and we learn about what God is like, and He's talking of His Son to come as the Messiah. But some prophecies actually are the voice of the Lord Jesus from the Old Testament. So we find Christ in the Old Testament speaking of Himself as the Messiah we are to anticipate. This is how we know we got it right by being New Testament Christians because of the connection between the Old and New Testament, they cohere perfectly and they show us and reveal to us the full picture of Jesus, who he is. What would it be like to hear our Messiah speak directly of himself from the Old Testament? And I was asking myself this question and was consulting with a a fellow, um, well, a seminarian um, in our church and it was suggested, why don't you, look at the servant songs in Isaiah. There's five of them. These are songs sung or poems written um, through the voice of God, the father about the son or the son speaking of himself. And so I thought I would tackle these servant songs and look at them in detail. Isaiah is a great big book, but we can kind of boil it down to the immediate context of what was going on around these songs, that Isaiah was the instrument through which they were spoken, they were sung, and they were written for us by the Holy Spirit's work through Isaiah, but it really is the voice of God speaking of his son or the son speaking of himself. It's an intimate voice of the Father speaking over his Son, who is hope personified. Hope is a person, and that's Jesus. These songs were sung between 700 and 686 B.C., sort of the the dates, you know, kind of descending to when Christ comes, so you have 700 years before Christ comes. 700 BC to 686. These songs are sung in anticipation to Israel being captured by Babylon. Babylon is in the Far East, gonna come and capture. A pagan nation is gonna capture Jerusalem, the Southern Kingdom, Judah, for becoming pagan. Sound familiar? A country that leaves its sort of God moorings A country, a nation, a people that was supposed to be God's country that had gone apostate, that had gone idolatrous, that had forsaken God, that had become monochromatic, hopeless, in need of a savior. And yet it was on a crash course, collision mission to be captured by the Lord really using Babylon to punish this nation. 586 BC was when the captivity would take place. That's where Daniel and all of that begins. If you know the story of Daniel and the Hebrew boys being taken off, well, that's the the nation being taken away. That was a hundred years later after this moment where these songs are sung. At this point, the Northern kingdom had been... um, Captured by the Assyrians. The Assyrians are the near um, pagan nation. In 722, it captured the northern kingdom. And the threat was there that the Assyrians were now going to come deeper in and capture Jerusalem and Judah and this area, the southern kingdom. Remember, after Solomon's reign, David and Solomon, the kingdom split. The northern one had been taken away, and the southern one was at risk and at threat in this moment when Isaiah is preaching and prophesying and warning the Southern kingdom against its idolatry. So the Assyrian armies were there and they were threatening. Does any of this sound familiar in the nation of Israel these days? The threatening of countries. I mean, the Assyrian people would be in geographically kind of modern day Iran and Iraq. You have this country that is threatened and vulnerable and then you look at our country and the state of things and the paganism that's here. The current kingdom that our king that was over the southern kingdom was Hezekiah. And Hezekiah was this ruler who was actually one of the more godly kings out of the line of, that came after Solomon. Josiah was the most godly. Hezekiah was a, a good um, kind of runner up to Josiah. Hezekiah was the son of Ahaz. He was 13 in the line of uh, Judah's kings. Hezekiah would have seen as a prince, he would have seen the northern kingdom fall, and then ultimately he took the throne at age 25, and he would rule for the next 29 years. His dad was Ahaz, and he took the throne after Ahaz departed, and the southern kingdom was under threat, under imminent siege, By the Assyrians who had swept away the northern kingdom already. So that's the situation with godly Hezekiah. He's there to defend it. And Sennacherib is uh, the the leader of the Assyrians, the ruler, sort of the, the Hitler of the day who's coming to bring siege to Jerusalem at 701. BC. Hezekiah, good king. He's doing all the right things. He's prohibiting false worship, man-made deities. He's ripping them down. Second Kings um, 18 verse 5 says, Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among all the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. 2 Kings 18.5. 2 Chronicles says the same thing. He was a prominent king. He's in the, the lineage of Christ. He's documented in Matthew's genealogy. He's mentioned in Jeremiah, Hosea, Micah, and Isaiah. This is a godly man. Proverbs 25 says that his governing officials made copies of the Proverbs. Hezekiah means, as a name, Yahweh strengthens. It's not by accident. He repaired the temple, perched idols, reformed the priesthood, destroyed high places. He destroyed the bronze serpent that Moses had made because it was being worshipped as an idol. He defeated the Philistines at Gaza. And he even resumed Passover with the scattering twelve tribes of Israel. So he did a lot of good. Second Kings eighteen four. Let me just rehearse what I said, but from scripture. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, which were idols. Immoral idols, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. They were worshiping the bronze serpent as a relic, and so he destroyed it. He was known for that. All this success as a king is the backdrop to chapter 38 of Isaiah. So you can turn there in the book of Isaiah, kind of smack dab in the middle, Isaiah 38 through 40. Hezekiah in this moment is humanized. He's kind of up here and he's sort of brought down as we all can be. Sennacherib was uh, king of Assyria. He's threatening Jerusalem. Isaiah 37, 33, though, says this Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into the city or shoot an arrow there or come before it with a shield or cast up a siege mound against it. You can't show up. God is protecting Jerusalem. So God actually sent an angel of the Lord on, it says, Isaiah 37, 36. And 37, the angel of the Lord struck down 185,000 soldiers in the Assyrian enemy camp. Isaiah 37, 36, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived in Nineveh. Sort of tail tucked after that. But in the wake of victory, Hezekiah's mortality shows up. Look at verse 1 of chapter 38. In those days, Hezekiah became sick and was at the point of death. And Isaiah, the son, or the prophet of the son of Amaz, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, set your house in order. That's what you don't want to hear. Set your house in order, for you shall die. You shall never recover. He Hezekiah had a life-threatening boil or a massive inflammation through his body, and he was set to die. But Hezekiah reverenced the Lord and went to the Lord in prayer for recovery. In verse 2, it says, Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Please, O Lord, remember how I have walked before you in faithfulness and with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. Verse three, verse four, rather, the word of the Lord came to Isaiah and listen to the blessing of God. Go and say to Hezekiah, thus says the Lord, the God of David, your father, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life and I'll deliver you and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria and will defend this city. And then he gave him an actual sign and a promise through the sign. There was a staircase that was acting as a sundial and the Lord promised that he would move the shadow miraculously either by suspension of the sun or whatever. um, Sort of superseding meteorological laws and move the shadow 10 degrees to prove that his promise would come to pass. 15 more years of life. Hezekiah was very happy with that, perhaps knowing that his lineage would carry on um, as his son, a son maybe would grow up as a king because of that, to follow him. All of this was encouraging. He did recover. I want to read, just belabor this prayer. I mean, this is an amazing prayer that Hezekiah prays in light of being healed. It says, verse 9, in the writing of Hezekiah, the king of Judah, after you've been sick, And recovered from his sickness. I said, In the middle of my days, I must depart. I'm consigned to the gates of Sheol for the rest of my years. This is him. He knows he's going to die. This is how you pray when you're like that. I said, I shall not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living, I shall look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. My dwelling is plucked up and removed from me, like a shepherd's tent. Like a weaver, I rolled up my life. He cuts off. Cuts me off from the loom from day to night. You bring me to an end. I calmed myself until morning like a lion. He breaks all my bones from day to night. You bring me to an end. It's really at the end of himself like a swallow or a crane. I chirp. I moan like a dove. My eyes are weary with looking upward. Oh, Lord, I'm oppressed by my pledge of safety. Be my pledge of safety. What shall I say for he has spoken to me and he himself has done it. I have, I walk slowly all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. He's beginning to dig deep and think through, why am I suffering like this? What are you doing in my life where I'm going to die? Oh Lord, by these things, men live. And in all these is the life of my spirit. Oh, restore me to health and make me live. Listen to verse 17. Behold, it was for my welfare that I had great bitterness. But in love, you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction. For you have cast all my sins behind your back. He knew that his suffering, his calamity, his sort of into the world mindset. He, he's in the throes of suffering and unimaginable crisis. He knew that it was for his own holiness, for his own sanctification, For his growth. This was Hezekiah's mountaintop experience. Even at his lowest point, he was trusting in the Lord and he was healed. He was given 15 more years. He was given this promise. And this news got out nationwide. This is national news for a world leader, one of the world's leaders, to go down. Imagine, you know, Ben Netanyahu or who, you just, somebody's going to die. And everybody's. Looking at that country, looking at that nation, and maybe wanting to pounce. And then he's resuscitated, brought back to full, pristine health. This made it to the Babylonian country and the king of Babylon, chapter 39, verse 1. At that time, Merodach Baladin, son of Baladin, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he'd heard that he had been sick and had recovered. So he sent his men with presents to connect with what had happened. I don't know all the reasons why, but an alliance was, uh, was going to be born out of this. And it wasn't something that God wanted. Just read along with me. And Hezekiah welcomed them gladly, and he showed them his treasure house, his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, and the precious oil His whole armory, all that was found in in his storehouses, there was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Why did he do that? Doesn't actually say it could be his pride. Maybe he's wanting to be in the club with the king of Babylon and say, look, you know, I know that you have so much more, but look what we have. Look at our armament. We're strong. Maybe we can be friends. We can connect. We can build an alliance against the Assyrians and ward off that threat. Now, God had already promised him that the Assyrians were not going to be a problem, but it sure looks like he's building an alliance here with Babylon. Remember, they were under God's judgment, God's prophetic judgment, that the captivity is coming if you don't repent this was a moment where Hezekiah could have said, I'm giving all glory to God for what has been given to me, all of what I have. And maybe he would show that out of a sign of faith, but he was not acting in faith with what he was doing, perhaps building an alliance. Verse three, then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah. This is unannounced. It's abrupt. Here he is and said to him, what did these men say? And from where did they come to you? Think about where they came from, who they are, why are they here? What did they say? Hezekiah said, they have come to me from a far country from Babylon. And he said, what have they, what have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, they've seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Here's Isaiah's response. Then Isaiah said, to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming. This is Isaiah saying, by the way, you want Babylon, I'm going to give you Babylon. This is God saying that. If you want to go pagan, you can go pagan. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and, all, and, and that which your fathers have stored up till this day. You've shown them everything, so all of it's going to be carried to Babylon. Do you see that in verse 6? It shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons, not only your possessions, but your lineage, your flesh and blood, your sons, who will come from you, whom you will father shall be taken away and shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Pagan culture, androgynous culture, death culture, Babylonian culture, your sons are going to be given to that. You want to tie up with them? You're going to be tied up with them. And Hezekiah said this to Isaiah, and this is Isaiah or Hezekiah's kind of curious, kind of weird response, short-sighted response. He's been flexing to the Babylonians. He's now been rebuked by Isaiah. And he says this, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, I mean, this is what was going on in Hezekiah's mind. There will be peace and security in my days. He's just doing this. He's not thinking about his sons, not thinking about the nation anymore. He's just narrowly focusing in on himself going, at least in my lifetime, I'll be okay. That's all of the backdrop in 40 minutes to the servant songs. I've just taken that time to set the stage, but why? Well, it's because Isaiah, this book is making a very clear point to us. Hezekiah, as godly a man as he was, and I tried to fill out his godliness and his faithfulness and his prayer and his recovery and the Lord promising things for him with also his humanity, which is frail and vulnerable and weak, to say, No matter how great Hezekiah was, he was not the Messiah. And I think that's what Isaiah is saying. He's not the Messiah. Believers have to embrace Babylon, but see beyond Babylon to see Christ. Babylon is imminent. It's years away, 100 years away. It's coming. Captivity is coming. But the servant songs are given prophetically for people to look over Babylon and see Jesus. That's what we're called to do. No matter what's hitting us or happening to us, every Christian is called to see Jesus as your hope. You have to have hope beyond Babylon. That's how you live the Christian life. Jesus is the only person who provides hope. Let's look at the first of the servant songs in chapter 42. This is it. This is... All we're going to cover quickly, Isaiah 42, behold, my servant, that's what marks us as a servant song. It's verses one to four, whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. Listen to this, a bruised reed. He will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till, his, till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. It's the first of the five servant songs. Jesus is Messiah. Luke 9, 35 is where the Father said, this is my son, my chosen one. First Peter 1.20 said, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Here Isaiah is revealing him as this servant who would uphold, whom I uphold, my chosen, and whom my soul delights. What you have here in this servant song is our highlights of hope. It's highlighting Jesus' coming mission. Point one is God pronounces His Son as the source of hope by putting His Spirit upon His Son. Says, "Look, behold, My servant. This is My servant. This is the one I uphold. Don't look at anything else. That's how you find hope. Just look at Jesus. This is whom I uphold. He's My chosen." Remember, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. That's what he said at the baptism. That's what he says at Mount Transfiguration. Listen to this one. That's what he's going to say to his disciples. He's saying it here through the voice of Isaiah. This is him in whom my soul delights. I mean, we're going to celebrate Jesus' birth. And you just think of Mary and Joseph and Mary in particular just bubbling over with joy over her child. That's like God the Father over the second person of the Trinity. This is my beloved Son, and whom my soul delights. I love Jesus. God the Father loves Jesus, and he invites us to love his Son. He's the one whom was put the Spirit of God. I have put my Spirit upon him. Remember, Christ came. Again, in his own power, fully God, but being fully man, he was energized and empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came to rest on him at baptism. He was energized. He lived the perfect, energized life in the power of the Holy Spirit as the God-man. He's our example, our model for how to do that. He's the one that offers hope beyond Babylon because he had the Holy Spirit on him. If you are, want to be able to lift your head above the pagan culture, you have to be yielded like Jesus was to the Holy Spirit, to pray to the Holy Spirit, pray to God to help you to be above Babylon, to see above Babylon and see Jesus by the power of the Spirit, power to serve, and power to obey, empowered to yield. Ultimately, it says that he will bring forth justice to the nations. That's looking beyond his first visit to the second visit at the millennial kingdom. Verse 2 brings us to point to, God portrayed his son through humility, who through humility brings hope. What kind of leader was Jesus? This is what validates that we have the right Jesus. Jesus came first time in full humility, shrouded in humility. He didn't come as the boisterous, look at me leader. He wasn't the loudest. He wasn't the, you know, the, the showman. He wasn't trying to... Be all about him, even though the focus was on him as Messiah. It was a self-deprecating, humble posture, a, a foot-washing posture that he came. It says, verse 2, he will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. He says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. What does that mean? It means the hurting individual who is a reed that is like, just broken at a certain point, he's gonna bind that reed up. Instead of ripping it off and throwing it aside, he's gonna care for it, hold it together until it heals. That was his ministry here, helping the bruised reed or the smoldering wick that's just about to shut down and, and kind of fade away and faint out. He, he, he cups this, uh, this wick and blows gently on it until it flames again. He brings hearts to life. That's our Messiah. That's our Lord Jesus who loves us, who loves you. He came in humility. Thirdly, it says God promises his son will succeed winning the world with hope. You see that. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he is established. Justice in the earth. What does that mean? It means God is promising that the Lord Jesus' mission will be done. We can't build the church. We can't do anything to build this place up. God has promised to build his church. God is bringing his kingdom to himself. He is winning the nations through us as we witness to the world. There's an effort to go. There's an obedience to go. And there's an effortlessness as we go and are going because the Holy Spirit is the one calling and drawing people through our life and through the message and witness of the gospel. It's just how it works. He's promised. God the Father is promising that Jesus will not grow faint or be discouraged. He'll, he'll finish the job. Establishing justice on earth, justice for the Jews who would believe. And justice to, did you see this? We're included in this promise. Till he's established justice in the earth and the coastlands, wait for his law. All of the world, Jew and Gentile. So how do we wrap this up and apply it to see beyond Babylon? Well, December's an interesting month because it calls us in the calendar year to celebrate Jesus in hope, past, present, and future. Past hope, we look back to the birth of Jesus at Bethlehem, born in a manger, the incarnate son. We believe that, we commemorate that, we celebrate that, we sing that, we feel that, we translate that into daily life. We love Christ. We live in the mission. We have a heart that swells in love for him as we're gathered together. We'll sing next week, Christmas carols again into the evening hour with the candlelight service. We'll feel all of that. But my challenge is for us to have hope not just be tethered to the past or now in the present, but looking future to the future grace of Christ's return. He is the hope of all the problems that I introduced this sermon series with in our world. He's the answer. He's the reason we don't get angry within the podcast and go, yeah, there is nothing we can do. Or, Wow, it was so much better. Or, what do we need to do to fix this? Well, we might need to do some things as citizens and do some things to help out our culture along the way that's for sure but don't lose hope no matter what happens no matter the wins or the losses in the culture we're steady in hope because Christ is with us Christ is building his kingdom Christ wins in the end he won us to Christ right so we know he is the winner So based on Christ's blessing in the present, based on Christ's coming in the past, and based on Christ's promised hope for us in the future, we sing the songs of hope in these servant songs, and we'll do it for a couple weeks. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together. We thank you for time in your word where you've taught us, you've shown us who you are. Lord, we want to not only taste and see that you are good. We wanna show people your goodness as the light of the world. Thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for hope. In Christ's name, amen.